Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The explosion of immigration into the region that followed forced the U.S. government into a fraught treaty-making process with local tribes. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series and Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. The podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. In our fourth episode, we discuss food sovereignty and how the movement of food sovereignty relates to the protection of treaty rights won in the Puget Sound Treaty War. This episode again references the fishing wars of the 1970s and the resulting Bolt decision, as well as two recent legal battles over treaty rights, the 2018 Culverts case, in which the Supreme Court upheld a ruling that culverts constructed by Washington State blocked salmon runs, and the 2022 dismissal of charges against two Tulalip fishermen brought by the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife for alleged shellfish trafficking. Hello, my name is Warren King George. I'm an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian tribe on my father's side. And on my mother's side, I descend from the upper Skagit tribe. Nancy Bullchild, Nisqually Indian tribe, director of archives and tribal historic preservation office tribal member and uh, tribal elder. Hi, my name is Danny Marshall and I am the current chair of the Stillicum Indian tribe. I've been working on issues supporting the cultural knowledge of our people since about 1980 and have uh, a passion for making sure that the expertise of the Tribal people is shared in a good way. In our native culture, there has been this disconnect from many categories of our culture and history, much like language, spirituality, identity. Because I was born in 1965, really had the good fortune of of experiencing traditional foods in the early 60s and mid 60s and in the early 70s the traditional foods were much more prevalent and easily accessible and were very common it was very common to have fish heads to fish tail soup our generation can easily identify what berries are edible and what time of year they will be available. With this food sovereignty movement, uh, I think it applies to the younger generation. Uh, They're that generation that are getting a little more curious about who they are and where they come from. And because it's not as challenging as understanding your 
your traditional language or uh, understanding your traditional faith or religion or even understanding your genealogy. Because in this day and age with adoptions and with the government's agenda from that era, you know, ripping people, ripping traditional families apart uh, because they thought it was in the best interest of the children, of the child. So there's this generation that's uh, up and coming. They're here now and they are really curious about who they are and where they come from. And so this is one one category where they can identify with who they are. And it's the younger generation that's taking control of their of their diet and, and being more mindful about the resources that exist here in the Pacific Northwest that fed and provided sustenance to the first peoples of this area. And for 14,000 years, the people have survived in the Puget Sound region on the generosity of Mother Nature. And it's through these thousands of years that the, the tribal people have unlocked some of her secrets and learned the benefits of the traditional foods and the native foods that grow here, the ungulates and the fish and the duck. Not only is it healthy, but it's also that the people are actually literally exercising a treaty right that's been preserved for them. And this is this is exactly what our our ancestors had in mind when I I believe this, that when when they were negotiating treaties, this is what our ancestors had in mind for these younger generation, these people to, to have that experience, to have the right to experience fresh berries, fresh fish, fresh camas, fresh elk and deer and bear. I think sovereignty really does talk about authority over the food. And I can relate that back to the treaty because potentially one of the only things that, that we can grasp a hold of right now that, that the treaty has provided us is this right and ability to control certain food and, and gathering uh, of those things within our traditional territories. So the treaty promised that. And, and I would say that as a sovereign authority that we have within the treaty, but we don't act out that um, total uh, authority that we could because within the treaty, it says all the normal places we hunt and gather, we're gonna be able to have access to those. So that doesn't exclude private property as well. And, and or potentially uh, a cedar tree that's growing somewhere that's outside of, of, of tribally owned land uh, and gathering the bark from that tree for traditional purposes uh, is, is promised within the treaty. I think the tribal people have always worked to provide a joint sovereign respect over those things and have never said, hey, we're gonna force this. Maybe on public land, that's a little bit different. So uh, feeling like we can you know, walk onto some public land and have the access to something growing there. It's a part of our traditional diet. That's, that's something that, that we should do. And, and I think we should uh, potentially look for opportunities to, uh, we're not gonna step on, on private property owners' uh, feet in the process, but, but there are definitely opportunities within the public land that, that are still a part of this state and, and we should be able to practice those traditional things. That is a sovereign promise that, that relates to food as well as 
other customs and traditions? Food sovereignty, I feel, is being used for the next generation to help with teaching. It's used a lot with, you know, when they did gathering, you know, when it was time to go to the mountain, when it was time to go to the saltwater, you know, the rivers. And so by bringing that back, you're teaching these younger generation. You know, I never taught my children. We didn't take them to go dig clams. I didn't take them up to the mountains to, to pick huckleberries like I was taught because I remember that when we were young, you know, you went up and it, you went up as a group. But you learned, oh, this is the time we go up and pick huckleberries. And, you know, so now my nieces are going through the same thing, you know, learning when to gather cedar. It's also using that time of the season of why you do things for even preserving your foods. You know, you need the baskets. So you did, the, you know, did the baskets in the winter so that you had these when you went to gather food. You use your baskets for gathering shellfish. As the Hudson Bay or the forts that came in, the thing they started doing was clearing the land. With the treaties, they wanted to force tribal people to farm. So that included destroying all of your natural prairies, destroying all of your gathering, you know, the berries, every place, because you everything was sectioned off, you know, in order to plow up the field, in order to feed you know, livestock, which totally destroyed some of those prairies. So with that, took away some of these teachings that our ancestors would have used to teach the younger people, you know, and that just kind of disappeared. Um, and then with the regulations, it was hard. You know, we were allowed to go dig clams, you know, up in the Quinault Reservation. You know, you, that's, that's how it was. Other people were allowed to go fish for my grandma at the river, you know, there wasn't these restrictions on, nope, you can't go to the river, you have to have a permit, you know, you have to have a license, you know, these kind of things. So part of that with the treaty bring that being enforced, we go into the fish wars. So, and that was the same thing. It was a treaty right taken away. You just couldn't go out, step outside, um, you know, if you lived up by the river or even the salt water, you just couldn't go out unless they said you were on reservation. And now this movement to bring that back is, to me, used as a teaching tool for the next generation to understand because we can't go back into that era. When they did the treaties, yeah, you were agreed to get all of this, but you had that in the first place, you know, and then with it, you know, you were sent to, your kids were sent to schools at the time when they should be out gathering, fishing, you know, all of these things. So how do you keep that going when they're not even there? How do you teach that? And so with tribes, a lot of it is trying to bring that back to the younger generation. So they're understanding, you know, this was the time you did that. This was the season you did that. This is why you did it. Even climate change today, you know, is affecting foods as far as, you know, the salmon. If, you know, there's pollution, you have no salmon. So it's a way of helping younger people understand you know, you really need to be involved because if you're not, there's a lot of things that, you know, that you're not going to have for another generation. Yeah, the difficulty is that the treaty didn't stipulate any rules, having total access to hunt and gather in all of our traditional areas was not limited. And, and that would mean traditional practices were followed. 
and not based on any kind of rules that the government put in place about what was in season or out of season or times when you could go into the mountains and times you couldn't or anything else. So the sovereign relationship between the governments, the tribal governments and the, the state of Washington potentially come against each other because they set rules and, and they will be outside of traditional practices sometimes. You can think back to you know what happened during the, the fishing wars. I mean, that was that was really all about the government coming to terms with the fact that they had figured out that their regulations were impacting the traditional rights and, and promises that were made to the tribe. So in that case, we had one, one moment of success where, where the government recognized that they were impinging on, on those rights and authorities that were granted in the treaty and uh, tribes were offered at least an opportunity to harvest the fish uh, even when other people couldn't and and people couldn't understand that so so yeah it did cause some conflicts it's written in the history the main reason flesh i went to war because they didn't want to give him the reservation by the water which was promised which he had stated that's where you know his people got their food you know the salmon the prairies, you know, there was a lot of issues with that that he was unhappy about. So that was a part of, of the treaty war relating to food. Some of the rules that, that come in place that, that the tribes have to fit under also guided our ability to create a livelihood out of the traditional hunting and gathering that we did. And so there's there's a difference between subsistence and and gathering items for sale, but that's a part of the livelihood that's created in today's world too. So, so a big piece of what happened even with the Bolt decision and, and, and fishing authority given to the tribes at that time was that it, it really was about commercial fishing and the ability to you know harvest fish and, and, and make income off of that as well to support your family and tribal communities. Those things, those things really do come against each other in, in the way the, the rules and traditional practices coexist. If you're non-native uh, in Washington state and you're thinking, you know, why is this such a big deal? We'll just go to the market instead. We'll just go down to the fisherman's terminal and get whatever we need. Or we'll just go to, to Hagen's and get our satisfying our cravings. Well, it's much different for, for a Native American. Um, we have this old saying in our culture, I need to feed my Indian. And people in our family and people in our in most villages understand that phrase. Uh, it's, and you know our you know we grew up hearing that and we never did question it, but it meant, you know, it meant that you you wish you crave for your traditional foods. You have a craving, and you need to satisfy it. Well, these two cases, in in my opinion, um, lead to that opportunity to feed your feed your Indian. And that old phrase that you know I've used this several times: um, feed the people. You know, that's one of the uh, the mantras that you can use that uh, that that helps. Um, that helps uh, uh, 
convey that that importance of your work that you do. Go to work so that we can feed our family. We keep our we take care of our equipment, our vehicles, and we take care of our spirituality so that we can uh, use it to feed the people. Take care of our rifles and take care of our our knives. Make sure they're sharp so that we can feed the people. It's a metaphor for utilizing the land and having access to that land and having access to those resources. And in my opinion, the culvert case and the shellfish case, both uh, re-announce to the world that these resources uh, remain vital and are integral in uh, helping sustain identity and also also echo what our elders have always preached to us and you better go and and feed your indian you better get you better get out there and get go go get me that clam go get me that crab go get me that camas go get me that piache i need to feed my indian and if if we don't have if we don't um defend that opportunity if we don't defend those rights that our children have and their children will eventually have you know we're going to be we're going to be lost again we're going to be right back where we started that's what these two cases mean to me um the uh, it maintains and provides that opportunity for us to feed our indian where we we began speaking about the impact of the of the wars from the treaty, uh, those were resolved through these promises of being able to hunt and gather in your traditional areas. That really was all we had left. So you're excluded from your territory for a piece and put on Fox Island as a reservation, separated from your traditional villages and and. And then people burn down your longhouses and and you go back to whatever place you have left after this happens. The only thing we really did have left was our land that we we knew were was traditional village areas and the right to go and fish and hunt. And and that's what people wanted. So it's like, okay, yes, we'll resolve this war by by going back to fishing and hunting in our traditional areas. But but then what has happened since then is the, the rules and regulations and stipulations that have continued to, to restrict that ability, the sovereign authority over our hunting and fishing and, and gathering in our traditional places that, that has brought us to hopefully a better place today where we can coexist. And we don't want to get back to, to where we were when we started, which was a war over that. Tribes, tribal people did not do this on their own. Where did the tribes learn to sell foods to these explorers, to these settlers, to all of these people that probably wouldn't have survived? You know, these settlers depended on tribes to feed them because they could not provide for themselves. When trading came about, who were they trading with? They were trading with tribal people to get the animals for furs, for whatever, to send back to England but or their country. So the, this was a taught process to tribal people. 
tribal people did trade, but they traded for food. They traded for things they couldn't get. You know, the Yakimas or another tribe wanted clams, shellfish. You know, they traded. They traded baskets. They traded all these things. They, it wasn't up for sale, you know. And like I said, we have this problem with Mount Rainier in the parks with the gathering issue. It's a rule that we're allowed to gather. Well, now, you know, these other agencies are saying, oh, they're going to wipe out all of the plants. I go, we never did that. You know, we never wiped out plants. We always, it was by season, you know, we went in and gathered what we needed and we left. It was taught, you know, they showed tribal people how to sell, to make money. This was a process that wasn't something we did. You know, we traded for, like I said, food or whatever we didn't have, but we're being called on the carpet for something that we never brought here. You know, we never did that. It was brought with the trading, you know, fur trading. The Anderson Island Historical Society, they had a newsletter that came out in April. Oh, it's probably been about 10 or 15 years ago now. But in the newsletter, it said that the Stilicum leader had negotiated some uh, agreement with the state of Washington and Anderson Island was going to be returned to the Stilicum Indian tribe. And so they, they quoted this Stilicum leader and and the name that they had for the leader was was actually the word April Fools spelled backwards. The interesting story was that I started getting phone calls at our tribal center immediately after that article was published. And people were so concerned about how, how we could do that. How is the Stilicum tribe going to be taking their land? They, they've they lived there and they own this is private property and they own that. So what's going to happen? The Stilicum tribe is going to throw all these people out of their homes. And I said, first of all, I don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> I hadn't seen the article yet. Uh, and, and secondly, we wouldn't do that. We, we, you know, at least let you take some stuff with you. <laughs> There is some worry about the coexistence of the people and, you know, our tribe's going to actually try and, you know, come back and take away our, our private property. And in some cases, there has been some major incursions on, on, on what has been allocated to the tribal people where you have people that have their homes on reservations and land that should have been reservation. And so that did have to be resolved. We, we have a, an issue with coexistence for sure and, and how we implement these sovereign connections that, that are a part of the treaty and needs needs to be you know respected, I think, by all people and how do we work through that. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Sklalem Lummy.